Yes, I planted some long ocean seed of a song Went down inside me long ago And now I can't remember when it was But it joined up with the rest of them and grows It's such a little song, it don't compare With all your big ones you hear everywhere But when it dawns, when the back of your Mind. The big ones are made up by the little kind Union song, union battle All added up, what is all what we got now Alright folks, this is it. Here we are. Um, it is May 1st. It is almost midnight. Um, and we're doing it. We are... The WGA is on strike. Um, I think, you know, we knew this was coming. It's not a surprise. Um, it's disappointing. It's disappointing when you look at the breakdown of of how our demands were received. Um, it's kind of shocking. Offers from the AMPTP to our proposals are mostly rejected outright. They're insulting the responses. Um, it's it's worse than I expected it to be. I don't have I don't have a whole lot to say right now. Uh, you know we're 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 going to strike together. I'm going to see so many of you out picketing. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be tough, and I think it's going to be a long haul, as I often do when when faced with these sort of big questions about the industry, these big changes or things that we need to contend with, um, I turned to our community of writers. Um, and I did that last week just to see how people were feeling. I'll be putting those responses over in the newsletter over at benblacker.substack.com. Uh, I put one out today. I will probably put one out tomorrow with this podcast. Um, but I wanted you also to hear in in the podcast um, some of the responses that I'm getting because they are, I wouldn't say heartening, but they are um, comforting. Knowing that we are indeed in this together, knowing that our goals are really aligned. You see it in the WGA demands our leadership knows what we're going through and they are truly trying to get us the best deal. Um, I'm, I, I'm going to just, I'm going to give you this conversation. Um, I put out a, a notice to about 50 writers that I know, and I got some incredible responses, both, you know, emotional and practical. And, and one writer, uh, our friend, Akela Cooper, Wrote back and said, I can't believe I'm saying this, but do you want to have a Zoom instead, uh, instead of just recording a memo and sending it to me? And I said, absolutely, because I always have time for Akela Cooper. Um, so Akela and I got on a call um, on Friday of last week, and we chatted just about sort of where her head was at and and where she sees things going. So here here's a 10-minute chat with Akela about the state of things. And this was before we knew that there was a strike. Heard a part and the free. 
hungry for the union. So we kept on. Just like the corporate landscape as it is now, they do not care about people <laughs> like the employees that they need to make this money being able to make a living. It's like, literally, it's like, we have to, I saw something on Instagram today where it's like, we have to make uh, our stock prices look good to investors. So we've got to like find ways to cut costs. And that's like lowballing us on pay and like cutting staff so that staff writers, you know, don't get the opportunities that I got and showrunners, which is a place that I hope to be again someday, like are doing all the work. Like I've known a couple of showrunners who were running streaming shows and their life seemed like hell to me. Just like all of the work the that they had to carry by themselves because the streaming services were like, we're not going to give you a staff to help you out. It's like this, it's bullshit. Like we are, we are human beings and yet they don't expect us to be treated that way. It's like, no, you're a cog in a machine. Do the art, make us the money. And then you can crawl off and die, I guess, afterwards. We'll replace you. <laughs> but it's like, but I think that is that is mostly what we are fighting for, yeah. is what we are worth and also, like, workload at this point. It's like, no, you're going to recognize our humanity to some degree. I don't know, like, I don't think that's a percentage, you know, in the negotiation thing, but the, the I think there's the, um, that formula that they'll have for, you know, however many episodes a show has, it has to have X amount of staff, which I think that's vital. Like I really, yeah. really do. And also as someone who's worked in several mini rooms and, and I come from a privileged place that I could like take a mini room and then like dip and not worry about it. But even still it's, it's not great. The amount of work that we were doing in these mini rooms that should have been a full room. It's like, Honestly, we can't force them to like, you know, run their businesses better. But if you don't have faith that a show works, move on to another show that is a show and order a full damn season. In your darkest moments, what has you worried? That this will go longer than the last strike. Like financially, like like everybody else, I was cramming in work before May 1st and squirreling savings away. Uh, Cause I was like a hundred days. That was how long it was last time. That's what I'll need. Hopefully, you know, um, but that will go longer than that. And my biggest, my biggest fear is that like our union will start to fracture and then there will be pressure on the WGA to just take whatever deals on the table. And that'll just fuck us forever i because i i doubt the student like and that that is my biggest fear it's like if we don't win here like we're basically destroying writing as a career for anyone who's not a nepo baby or you know wealthy this yeah this is the thing that keeps coming up right this is an existential fight the job will exist or not exist after this and in, in a meaningful way um for anyone do you want to take that apart for a second? I mean, you've touched on it already a little bit, but like to put into plain English, what does that mean for people who want to do this for a living? 
how can we how can we tell them what we are facing in this fight it's the difference between like growing up and knowing you can be an entertainment writer whether that's tv or film but especially on the tv side and have it as a career it used to be a i mean it kind of still is but it's becoming harder so it's like you would start as an assistant which i did work your way up the chain which i did <laughs> learning as you go and gaining the experience as you go so that like once you sold your own show or became a showrunner you you had a, a a foundation of what you needed to do to be successful in that role and that is going by the wayside and it's basically becoming gig work they're trying to make writing especially television writing basically the equivalent of like driving for uber and lyft and doordash and we all know those struggles like we all know how those people get screwed over constantly and abused and like that is what the studios want from us is to basically take the scraps that they give us and still expect us to come up with dynamic works that either fit into an existing IP that they can then spin off and sell for whatever, or create a new IP that they can then beat into the ground until they have to move on. But there's no upward mobility. You'll just be a writer who's stuck in either the same level or the same uh, 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 pay level for years and years and years on end. And it, it is, this is essentially like destroying the writer middle class. Like not everyone is Ryan Murphy. Not everyone is Shonda Rhimes. Not everyone is Greg Volante. Like it is. And I think that like a lot of people outside this business don't realize that, that there is just like, or at least there was, and we are fighting to build it back. But there was a very healthy middle class of writer who didn't have to have a nine figure deal uh, but they could have a house, they could have kids, they could have life, they could have health care and survive. And like we're we're losing that. And that is what I believe in fighting for. In 07 and 08, those writers fought for people like me at the time who was an assistant, who was not where I am right now, to be covered. And that's what I'm doing is because like I don't believe in pulling the ladder up behind me. And all of the other sort of conversations that are part of this, whether it's about writers are not sent to set anymore because production happens after the room or AI and all of that nonsense, like it's all tied into this same idea that this as a job is disappearing. Um, and yeah, we're, we're fighting to, to keep it alive. I also just, and again, going towards the assistant, because like my empathy deeply lies with the assistants and, and and I know they're on in their own unions, but what happens to us will affect them. It's just also the collapsing of all of these jobs. Like you have your writer's assistant is also the PA, may or may not be the showrunners. It's, it's too much, again, it's too much on one person and taking those jobs and collapsing them is taking away opportunities, again, for like non- nepo babies and non-wealthy people to break into this business at all like every time you know i i have to give a talk i feel bad because it's like how do you break in and i'm like i started as an assistant i was part of like two writing programs one of which warner brothers is now gone <laughs> and so it's like i don't know what to tell these newer writers 
because I see those systems that help me going away. Um, and it's tough. And it's like, you don't need the fucking money for the stocks to look good. It's a rounding error. <laughs> just, just pay people to do the jobs. Like we had, and Netflix was the vanguard, but like there was a system that worked before. It's like you you sold the show, you had advertising, and then that studio sold it into syndication and then sold it to streaming. And then you made money. And now everyone is trying, again, it's like everyone's trying to collapse it in and like, no, we have our own streaming services. And they're, quite frankly, we see all of them going back to what? The advertising model. But now they don't have anybody really else to sell it to because they're hoarding it for themselves. So... Yeah, it's it's an overhaul of the system. Of course, and they again, thank you for doing this. I just like to whoever is listening, like hang in there. It's going to be tough if we have to do this, but we did it before and we won. We did it with the agency and we won. So know that like this is a fight worth having, and it's a fight that we can and hopefully will win. Union songs, union battles, all added up, what is all what we got now, union songs. So well put, as always, um, from Akela, summing up a lot of what a lot of us are feeling and, and why we're fighting this fight. Um, I'm going to bring you some more of these insights from other writers, all different levels, all different kinds of experience, um, all different takes on this uh, in the coming weeks and, and hopefully not months. Um, I'll do that here in the podcast uh, in small bits. I'll do that over on benblacker.substack.com. Let's go. All right, here's the here's today's episode with um, Andor creator Tony Gilroy. It was a great conversation. We recorded this a couple of months ago, so it's not at all topical. Um, but I really enjoyed talking with Tony. Um, some really great craft stuff in here that is worth your time to listen to because hey, you've got time to write. Thanks as always for listening. Tony Gilroy, thanks so much for being here. We are ostensibly going to talk mostly about Andor, but there is a lot to talk about with you. Um, you are a, an accomplished screenwriter, um, all the way back to The Cutting Edge and Dolores Claiborne, up through the Bourne movies, uh, Rogue One, uh, and of course Andor now, uh, as well as many other things. Tony, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, let's get into Andor. Uh, I was reading about the origins of this and your involvement in the series, and it was all really interesting to me, your approach to working in the Star Wars universe, which of course you've done with Rogue One, but like, tell me about how you got into Andor and, and sort of the ramp up to that series. Um, well, I mean, I don't, I mean, the, the legend of Rogue One and all the stories about it is kind of all out there i don't really add i don't really add too much to that um 
but I was on it for, you know, 10 months or whatever. So I was on the movie. I was deeply involved in it. And, um, you know, when we got finished, they were, uh, there was a lot of uh, euphoria, you know, around the possibilities of what could happen with the franchise um, and with Kathy and with Lucasfilm and all kinds of ideas about what could happen. And um, uh, some of that, you know, ebbed and flowed with various things that happened. But they wanted then, they they came back at one point and they wanted to, um, and we we floated out a variety of, you know, standing at the monitor kind of, you know, you could do this. What about that? We could do this. All these crazy ideas. But they came back and they wanted to do, a, they, they decided that they'd wanted to do a prequel uh, about Cassie and Andor and take them back five years. But it was for TV at that point, And it was pre- uh, uh, pre the sort of streaming souffle or whatever you want to call it that we have right now, because it certainly isn't formed yet, but it was at the very beginning prior to that. And the economics of trying to make a Star Wars show was, just seemed impossible and the scale seemed impossible. It just didn't seem right. So they went off and they tried one and then uh, a very noble effort. And they, and then Kathy just sent it to me to read it, you know, just as a, for notes, you know, so people do that. And, um, and I said, wow, this is really, uh, this is a proper thing, but it's just, you know, you, you can't make a show like this. It's, you can't, you can't, you won't be able to replicate this week after week. It'll just get tedious. You really need, and and, and I, um, I just must've been in a mood or something and had time and wrote a long thing about what they should do, what, what, what the show could and needed to be. And not without, it wasn't a job application in any sense. And, um, but what, I got it then. All right. So, and I, you know, you do that from time to time for different people. And is, and is this your MO? Like, will you get sort of taken with this thing and sort and do your own deep dive on it and share that with potential collaborators yeah. or, or whatever? Not even, I mean, I won't mention any names or anything, but, uh, you know, people will tell me ideas. I, I mean, I'll, I'll disguise the innocent, uh, but someone told me an idea for a movie a year or so ago. Uh, a, a writer is trying to make it and they told me this idea and I was like, man, that's a movie. That's just a movie. And you should do that. And, and recently I sat with this person again and they have their day writing job and they hadn't really, I don't know, they've been, they've been doing all the things that you do when you're trying to avoid actually doing the thing. So doing lots of research and talking to everybody and whatever. And, and, and um, I was like, man, this is a real movie. And if you don't do it, someone else might do it. You'll kill yourself about that. And then and then uh, I left lunch and then I walking home and I go, oh, my God, I got a great title for him. I called him up and gave him a title. And like, and like, you know, and you, if an idea is really good, you sort of just keep working on it. You know what I mean? And sometimes it's, sometimes it's incredibly helpful to the other person. Probably probably less often than I think, probably more often than, than I'm aware. It seems like some oppressive, you know, opinionated, you know, know-it-all who's trying to hijack my movie and tell me how to do it, you know? Cause, and, but if, if a movie drops for me, I get really excited about it and I want to work on it. So I don't know. Uh, I'll alternately, you know, fixate on something and then let it go. Or in this case, you know, I just had a very strong opinion about what they needed to do and what they had, why they were so trapped in this idea. And so I just wrote that up for Kathy and just sent it off. I mean, I, my, 
computer is filled with probably, I don't know how many hundreds of emails in, in that, you know, that are cousin to that document. Yeah. Um, and, and at a certain point though, this wasn't a job application. It became one. Um, so when they came back to you, what was that conversation like? They tried to do it again. They tried to do it again. Um, and, uh, in, in, in a different iteration, but um, they ran into the same math problem on it, which was kind of what my point was in the beginning, which is that you couldn't do and you couldn't have uh, you, you couldn't have a Butch and Sundance sort of K2 and Cassian doing a mission every week because you could only storm the Citadel, you know, <laughs> uh, once or twice before it gets pretty tedious. And that and it was a kind of it was a kind of replicating. It was the kind of thing that. That anybody who was under a lot of pressure would probably gravitate to and they had probably you know the the inertial gravity was to take people in that direction and it certainly wasn't adverse to what the studio would want but it was not the right it was a if you looked at it from forty thousand feet above you go like man you're trapped you're four episodes in you're doomed you're what are you going to do and um so they and then that idea ran into that wall basically at the same time that the the money for streaming was was accelerating so there, that other the other shows were also severely crippled creatively by the by the budgetary restrictions i mean it's really you know and my attitude from the very beginning was you know you can't there's no bargain basement version of star wars it just isn't you know it's like you can't do a you know I saw an idea for a low budget bond one time and that was kind of interesting, but there's no low budget Star Wars. There's no way to do it. Um, and unless they really want to spend the money on it, unless the money is available, unless the economics work out, you just can't do it. You, you just, you know, you're, you you have to, but but that was, the the money was meeting the moment at that time. And they had looked at this, they went back and looked at this document that I'd given them and they were like, wow, we didn't like this before, but now we like this. and. Let's talk about this. So then we just, then we spent a long time talking about it. V, you're given these eight, 10 episodes where you can explore a character deeply. Um, and I, do you think there was something about your unintended pitch that lent itself more to the nature of TV storytelling? Since, since the definition of what TV storytelling has shifted so, you know, dramatically in the last 10 years, 15 years, I don't even really know what that means anymore. I was looking at it more as just a sheer, I mean, there's protein and there's carbohydrates and there's energy for what drives your story. And like, there just wasn't a model for, for, and at that point, the idea was to do five seasons, you know, it was going to be five years, one season each year. That was the, that was the insane <laughs> looking back. That was the insane part of it. But, but the, um, there just wasn't a, it's very easy to look if you're trying to make up stories go like well what's going to happen what's the fuel what am i going to burn the fire on what am i going to make a fire out of and 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 uh they're just you know it was god you could do a great you could do a great couple hours with those two characters doing something but you can't you can't hold my interest for year after year or or week after week after week with that same dynamic so you automatically have to go in a different direction and then, um, and then also very controversially, to my mind, and particularly off my experience on Rogue, 
um, the K2 character, as beloved and fantastic as as he was, um, was kind of a story killer every minute. I mean, you know, you, you can't you can't take him anywhere. You can't fall in love with him. He's you, he's an imperial droid. So you can, every place you go, you have to explain him. Or he's just it's, if you if you go back and look at Rogue. I mean, even in Rogue, we were parking him three or four times back on the you know go back to the parking lot and wait in the car. I mean, it's already. You could see the shadow of that problem already in Rogue. And so it's really, um, my, my idea was that you wouldn't get to see, you wouldn't have a K2 uh, relationship until very, very deep into the, into the show. Once you're in charge, you know, once this is your series, uh, what do you face in the story development that becomes difficult? You know, I, I know that there, I mean, look, every there, there's a whole, uh, um, this is so probably now controversial, really, in a way. But my attitude, it could be with, with uh, you know, I'm just reading some of the stuff uh, from the pattern of demands and the, and the, and the, and the difficulties that so many people are having. Um, and I, I, I've always been, I've always been about the money and I've always get, I always got paid and I, man, I always make sure, but I, I've never not been about, getting paid for what I do. And I've never been about uh, being shy about that, but I have also profited um, personally and financially creatively by doing lots and lots of exposed work prior to signing a contract. It's very, it's become very important to me that people know exactly what I am going to do when I go to work. So there's no controversy later on on a movie the mistake you can make is, I mean, it used to seem like a big mistake. Now, 18 months, a movie seems like nothing to me. The mistakes, you cannot make that mistake on a, on a five-year commitment. I mean, you, or, or, I mean, it, it, this massive thing. So uh, I did a lot of, I did a lot of writing, uh, a lot of sketching, a lot of planning. And I worked very closely right from the start with Luke Hull, who's our production designer, because the biggest, the biggest, shocking new thing about it was that absolutely every single thing that we did had to be designed. And I, you know, I've been on projects where you do lots of description and you're in a different world and you know, I've done things like that before, but absolutely every single thing that we are ever going to do in the show has to be designed. So uh, Luke and I went to work for a long time before months, before we ever even, uh, before we even had the Bible as I was doing a Bible. Um, to try to say, okay, let's what what you know, I want to have this place. What's Ferrex like? And my cocktail napkin, my cocktail napkin map that we still have, and like turning that into thing. And what's this? And just and just really super going deep on that. That that's that. Um. And then, it the process is the same. It's just longer and more insane. I'm looking for landmarks. You know, it was a movie. I'm looking for landmarks. I'm looking for, oh my God, here's a scene that's fantastic. Where does it go? And and um, and looking for a frame, looking for a, a, a shape to it, looking for a grammar for it. What's the grammar? How many people can I handle? And how do I wrap these out? And so it was a very, um, you know, it was a very incremental, speedy. I mean, I was very, it was a very, I was working very, very quickly. I was, I got hot on it. Um, and every time I've touched this project, I've gotten hot on it. So when I did the memo, I was like, oh, wow, look, look how 
this this is coming up quick. And then when I came back at it again and looked at it again, I was like, wow, that looks good. What about this? So it was always giving way. It was always exciting me, but built uh, but 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 building it and having to turn into um, you know uh, an industrial designer and a costume designer and an ethnographer and a and an archaeologist and a you know uh, it 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 it, uh, it excite excited a lot of different parts of the brain, but it required a lot of different uh, skill sets than normally. That's really neat. Um, I, there, I have two questions coming out of that. One, the first is like, what what got you hot on this? What what made this something that was exciting to you each time you you dove into it? I think I was really ready for. I mean, look, the character. I've, I you know, I'm I'm a hero writer, right? I mean, I, I guess in general, you know, the idea that of you know, and this guy was. I mean, a Diego as a partner. Just number one. I mean, you wouldn't go into this at all if you thought the guy. If you if you thought you were being tagged, uh, you know, uh, put together with an asshole, you just. I mean, forget it. So, but I love. I mean, we just got along great. We we had a great time on Rogue, and I just. And he's such a. He's just. He's just really one of the best people and one of the best actors. And so that was it. But the idea of him, and my concept was very simple uh, in principle, which was that I was going to go the opposite of what they were going to do. I was going to say, how completely unformed can I make him? how big a hole can I dig five years earlier and force him to be a cockroach and crawl his way out? How, how far, how hard can I make it for him to turn into what is effectively, you know, a messianic kind of self-sacrificing character at the end who really is kind of, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's not perfect at the end, but he's as close to perfect as we get for, heroes sometimes and how far could I take him so that that really uh, I like that I like that idea a lot and um I had never had a chance to I never had a chance to pull together all of the things that I think about revolution and and the history of revolutions and all the time I've wasted reading about you know, all the, the French Revolution and all the books I have here about the Russian Revolution and how obsessed I was with the show trials and this and all the all the all the history stuff that I'd been gathering that I never uh, you'd never have a canvas that was big enough to deal with it. You know, you could deal with it in specific. But um, so I was excited by the idea of like, wow, I can I can really go at this. And uh, uh, how, how, how does a revolution really get built? Yeah. That's fascinating. And it's sort of next to the the process question I, I wanted to ask too is, you know, as you're putting together the, the pieces of this incrementally and you're working with designers or you're create, thinking about costume and character and how many characters you can build in this thing, what does that look like for you? What does your, you know, nuts and bolts process look like? Well, it's on my screen behind this Zoom meeting. I mean, I'm here today. I'm 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 in the last. You know, I'm like a lot of people now. We're in a good. We're in a pretty good, interesting position because we've been doing this for five years, and our sort of plan, kind of, coincidentally works with the thing. But our process is to blueprint all the scripts completely before they everything gets absolutely. It 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 it, it starts in the beginning and then. You know, the writers come in and they do all that and they move us along. And then in the end, it all has to come back out through this desk over a long period of time. But when it comes out, 
it's absolutely completely all departmentally prepped and everything is perfect. So I'm here today. I have a couple of weeks to finish. I'm on the I'm on uh, I'm on the 23rd of 24 episodes right now, and I'll finish by May 1st. But um, so I have I mean, my process is wide open in front of me. I have I am working on an episode. I have I have three different word files that are open because I sketch in Word. So there's I have two different sections of the story. I have uh, one plot line. I'm tracking that. I have all those chapters out with a lot of dialogue and or a hook. And then I have another one. That's a little bit problematic. And I have that one and I'm layering back and forth. I have some stuff that I've written already a long time ago that I probably wrote two years ago. A couple scenes that are that that, that were the bulk that formed the Bible. So I have all this stuff in front of me now. And, um, you know, I was sketching all day yesterday to try to get ready for today. And I'm trying to I'm trying to get a good 15 pages of script here today by patching all these things together. You know, I mean, I don't, it's always, it's just always the same thing. You sketch and sketch and sketch. And if you feel like you get hot on a scene, then I write the scene, you know, um, I write a lot of scenes. I write, uh, I mean, most of my sketching here as I'm looking at it, I mean, I would say a good 80% of it is dialogue. So it's, you know, dialogue, some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's talking points. Um, so I'm doing that. Um, and uh, I never, I never had anything this big to work with before. I never had as many characters to work with before. But you watch, you see me in the first three episodes. You can see me kind of getting my, getting my feet wet with what I can handle for characters. And then we get to episode four on the show, and that's when I just was like, "Well, fuck it, man. I'm going," you know. And at that point, it was like, "All right, well," um, and it was also. It was exciting to open it up. It needed to be opened up. It was also, you know, I was still writing all that stuff um, on the, uh, you know, uh, um, without a green light, um, certainly. So I was, uh, part of it is um, a challenge, you know, to the to the readers and to the people, to the money and to Disney and to Lucasfilm. Like, hey, man, this is how far I'm going to go. This is what it's going to get to. And uh and it's going to go beyond this. And and so it's it's all of those things. Does that answer your question? I think so. It does. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like in, in a practical sense, you know, your process looks like just a, a lot of Word documents, a lot of different documents that you're sort of pulling from and putting together. I don't like to sketch in final draft. I hate sketching in final draft. It's so... I wish... I don't know what I wish for final draft, but it, I use an older... but. I go to, I go and I use an ancient version of Word because I don't like what they did to Word. So I have an old, I don't know what happens when I switch this computer out now, but I have an old version of Word that I really like. So I, I sketch in Word and um, and I just, I don't care what it looks like. And um, I think if you don't have a writing partner, uh, particularly if you're plotting or stuff like that, I, I, I'm talking to myself, you know, I'm, I'm more overtly, than I did 20, 30 years ago. I, I'm really talking to myself here sometimes. And, and I'll come across documents where I'm literally stuck and I'm I'm mm -hmm. having a Socratic conversation with myself. I'm literally asking myself, hey, if she does this, I'm not gonna know that. So who knows this? And how do they know that? And how does she get here from there? And it's all, I mean, 
you know, sometimes some of that stuff is short-handed if you have a partner or if you're in a room or something like that. But if you're by yourself, so I mean, that is my process. So it, if you could see my screen, it's just literally there's like, I got a script and four other windows open up and I got the characters names. I got a whole other document here of these idiots. I've got a, I'm doing a, one of these things has 15 characters in it over, a, you know, over like nine little chapters of these things. So that, you know how hard those scenes are to write. You know, everybody wants to talk. And so it, I have all their names and who they are. And so I, that's, I mean, that is my process and it's, um, and I'll go through this. I'll finish this draft probably, I don't know, maybe tomorrow night I'll get it done. And then, uh, and then I'll sit with it and then I'll, then I'll go crazy on it for a couple of days and really yeah. dig in and, you know, every stage direction and every comma. Cause that is the, that is the system that we've come to here. And it's also the system that I like. I mean, I want every single scene to be paced exactly the way I want it to be paced the first time. So I know it works. So every stage direction, you know, the timing, the tempo of them, that they're all, you know, every, every single thing on the page reads. And so when it comes to the actors and the directors and they get out there, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll stick with my, they'll, they'll stick with my rhythm or they'll better deal it, but they never, they mm -hmm. never go astray. You know, they know when I want them to think, they know when I want them to, and I try not to be intrusive, but uh, I've gotten, I definitely want to, uh, I, I keep thinking to do that. I, I've told myself, I should remember to do that. At some point I would like to go through and just take all the stage directions I've ever written and put them up there. Cause sometimes you, you, you have a great one and you never <laughs> use it again. And it's like, you know, they really are an art form in themselves. I'm really, uh, it's been a, it's been a big study of mine for a long time. It's something I wanted to ask about. Um, has, has your approach to both that sort of scene work and stage directions changed since you started directing as well? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. How so? Uh, I think any writer who directs is going to write less after that. You're going to write less. Uh, you're, you're just gonna, I mean, I had that experience. I've talked about this before, but Dolores Claiborne in particular, we, um, we had an incredibly communal, uh, a really idyllic experience making that movie up in Nova Scotia. And we ran dailies every night in the old Robert Altman style. You know, we had the town theater and Taylor, we would have, you know, there'd be cater and we watched dailies every night. It was very cool and very fun, except Taylor likes to shoot a lot of coverage. And, uh, I was you know, writer on set. So I was writing a lot. I had a lot of great actors. Everybody wanted more shit to do. And I wasn't, you know, ridiculously experienced. And I had to sit in dailies every night and just watch this gobbledygook that I wrote, you know, endless takes of dialogue, blah, 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 you know, and like uh, that kind of slapped me up. And then after you direct, you go, wow, man, the camera can do this. The camera can do that. And you, you really write less and less. Um, and I'm curious about like that holistic approach to writing your scripts now, knowing what everybody brings to it and, and you know, knowing the kinds of questions an actor has or suggestions an actor has. Has that evolved since, you know, 30 years ago on, on your first couple movies? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Um, I don't make I. I, I uh, it sounds it sounds a bit uh vainglorious but i 
I don't, I don't make many mistakes anymore. I don't chase, I, I, my level of self-criticism is extremely high. Like really, like really extreme. So I don't fool myself ever about it. I've been burned too many times by writing stuff that you have to throw away and I don't have time to do that here. And I, and, um, and I, and so I'm very much like a sniper. Uh, I won't really, I'll sketch out scenes and I'll, I'll sketch, you know, but until the scene is vivid for me, until it has a hook, until I have a visual component to it, till it has a real, that really is my new ethos is that every scene has to be vivid. Every scene has to be, you know, a thing. Um, there are no, there are no, I think it probably that, I think that might hurt me later on in certain things where, but right now it's very good for this show and it's very good for me. Every scene has to bite and they all need a reason and something has to happen and there has, but I, but a lot of it is visual as well. Uh, and I, I think I was trying to do that all the time before I directed. Um, I, 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 I gave an interview someplace recently and it seemed to people were lighting up about, it. I mean, you should, uh, my, you know, I, I'm not interested in reading people's scripts. I said, unless the person who's writing it is directing the movie and, you know, on the page, I'm not interested in that anymore. I, you read someone's script and they're just, they're giving you scenes and they're telling you stuff and it's just, they're not, it's just not a movie. It's not vivid. They're not allowing themselves to take charge of the story in that sense. And so I, um, so I'm really on that. I don't, I may, I do make mistakes and I'll, I'll go back and clean up stuff later on, but I don't really, I can't really attack a scene until I have the hook for it. What mistakes might a non-directing writer make? You know, are they letting themselves off the hook? uh in in too many scenes yeah they're stand they're not holding themselves it's always a stop i mean take it down to its most base level what always fascinated me is i mean we've all seen we are we are we are we are the most narratively informed uh humans that 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 ever existed in the in the history of anything and and you've just been doing nothing but eating stories and characters from the time you're from pre-memory, you know, I mean, from cartoons all the way through, you've seen billions and billions of scenes. So it always fascinated me. Someone's really smart. They've seen all the shit. They know the canon. They've seen every movie. They write a movie script. They write their first script. Oh, read my script. And you read their script and it's as if they never saw a movie before in their life. It's like, wait a minute. Like, who would do this? Who would sit and listen to these two people talk this long? Or why you can't have her get, you know, her IQ goes up and down like seven times. And like there's so many different things where you just so if you there's a there's a willing blindness to people with creation of all types, I think. And I think that the. um I guess the mark of professionalism in anything really is the ability to see through the crap and see and see where it really sits and just, you know, just never, ever take it, you know, just never fool yourself. Don't ever hold it to the highest standard. So so people will write things and they'll be like, look, I wrote a script and look what I made. And you're like, yeah. Well, and, and, and then what's sad is someone gives you a script and it has a good idea in it and it's very poorly written. 
and uh, something doesn't work, but it's a really good idea. And you go like, you know what? There's actually a movie here. You could do this. And this is strong and this is strong and this is strong, but you got to do all the rest of this other stuff. And, you, and like, I can't tell you how many times people, people that I know over the, over the last four decades have, have, you know, either not done it or they just keep doing it wrong or they don't really want to listen. People only want to know what's good about their thing. Right. I mean, you know, you critique all the time. So read my script. And I, if I give you my script, I want you to tell me how much you love me. And I want you to tell me how great it is. And I'm the greatest thing, all of that. But, um, uh, that cannot be in your room. I can't be at your desk. Um, and, uh, and it's it's hard that because it takes a lot of confidence and ridiculous uh, overabundance of confidence to be able to sit down and do this every day. It's like stupid confidence, un, un, unjustified confidence much of the time. So it's a balance between being super confident and like self-assured and being absolutely mercilessly brutal on yourself and going, oh, my God, what are you fucking doing? You do not have this scene. This is not right. Um, I want to ask about those those times for you. Um, but tell me about when you started out and like, did you get kicked around? How did you learn your craft, and how did you learn the business side of it? Well, I mean, I'm uh, uh, I'm I was very much a late bloomer, completely late bloomer. I have a huge, I mean, I had a huge, uh, I guess would be described, you know, as a nepotistic uh, origin story because I'm not I'm not my I'm not a self-created human I mean I think that's my, a big distinction for me people who invent themselves and people who are you know either upgrades or replicants of what you know or comps my father did exactly what I did so I grew up watching all this but kind of we grew up in upstate New York in, a, in an interesting place not in Hollywood or whatever but but we all my brothers and I we watched it all from a distance but always with like it wasn't like a thing it wasn't like I never thought I would do anything with it but I but the business of it and how a writer lives and what that looks like and how you live from check to check, all that stuff was just normal for me. So the the habituation of it and the, you know, the life of it made sense to me. Uh, then when I, I was a musician and then I and then I started writing songs and then I got into writing lyrics and then I had a whole bunch of young 20 Crise issues and and uh, and I moved back to my parents' house for a while and I started writing short stories and I really got into writing and writing sentences and, you know, be you know, and it was the age of Raymond Carver and, and and it was, a you know, and I wrote a bunch of, you know, New Yorker type short stories and tried to be that kind of guy. And, and then um, I made a very big decision not to play music anymore. I wanted to be a writer and I moved and I, I was in New York. I was already living in New York and I basically thought, oh. I have this novel I want to finish. I'm going to write a screenplay really quick and make some dough and I'll pay for this novel. And then I ended up tending bar for about six years while I figured out how to write screenplays. How did you figure it out? What did that process look like? I just kept writing them and, and writing them and throwing them away. I wrote a lot of them. And, um, and um, I had good readers. I had some good readers. I had, I had some off the hook readers. But basically saying, hey, your script sucks, but you know what? You, you should do another one. You know, it, you, this is not not the worst. It's just not you, this is, you, you know, and. Um, and uh, I was I'd already thrown away what what I thought was a career before then. I, I know it sounds very young, but I but I by the time I was in my late 20s, I felt like I'd already 
like abandon a whole career. And I was like sort of trapped here. So I, I just kept doing it. I was very, very driven. And then, you, you know, I was, I, I never sold anything until I was 30. My son was born. I was still tending bar. Uh, it was very, um, it was pretty, it wasn't desperate, but it was, uh, it was, it was incredibly uncomfortable. I was very unhappy. Yeah. Was there a magic script for you? Was there a thing that you wrote that you, where things clicked and people responded and you felt like you were getting the craft, right? Yeah. Danny and I wrote it. My brother, Danny and I wrote a script together and, and called big moose. And, uh, and it just freaking everything dropped into place. It was kind of like a local hero kind of thing. You know, they kind of, I don't know, I shouldn't say it. We, we, we contemplated suing Northern Exposure for many years because um, uh, that'll be, a, that'll be, that'll be a, a soundbite. But um, <laughs> um, it really, it really got us a lot of attention. People really dug it. And a bunch of people tried to make it and it was really good. And it's just like, all of a sudden it was like, for both of us, it was like, wow. And it was, it was vivid scenes. It was vivid storytelling. And it was just, it was the kind of movie we were, we were built to write at that moment. And, uh, and again, a lot of characters and, uh, and it just was, and that really, that was the one where I really felt like, wow, this, I'm kind of getting this now. And, um, and that's the one that no one ever made it. Um, but it certainly came close. It was budgeted several times. And um, and that's the one that got us enough attention to get, you know, an agent to look at you and stuff like that. Yeah. Was I want to look at some of these early um, credits, at least. And I'm sure like there was a lot of writing that is not represented by these credits. But I'm so interested in like how the cutting edge guy and the Dolores Claiborne guy becomes a writer on Armageddon. And then goes into the eventually into these born movies into this sort of political action space. Can you talk about like both the kinds of stories you wanted to tell and the sort of opportunities you were getting early on? I don't know honestly the influence of the of the uh, of the passion uh, for this idea. I don't know if it came from watching my father and his contemporaries. Or whatever. I really was into this erroneous idea of being i really wanted to be um you know an a-level screenwriter i wanted to be like you know and i really felt like i could be at that point even the scripts that we had written all this all the things i'd written on spec and they were all varied and i really didn't want to be pinned down i wanted to be a swiss army knife i wanted to be go anywhere and um i wanted to be able to do anything and um as you know as hubristic as that sounds and I and I and I made some weird sort of vow. I said, "Well, I'm not going to be a director. I'm just going to be that pure thing." Everyone asks, "Oh, what do you really want to do? You really want to do this? You want to do that?" No, 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 no. I want to do this. So I was very driven in that sense. I was very conscious of always trying to take a gig that was not like the one I had done before. I mean, the cutting edge was like came along, and then all of a sudden it was like sports movies and rom coms. I was like, "Man, I can't do that." And and I got to get a serious movie made. And I wrote a bunch of some other things. And then I went to Castle Rock and then did Dolores Claiborne. And then, then I was more legit. But then I was like, as weird as it sounds, I, I got, you know, then you're offered nothing but, you know, Mildred Pierce after that. I mean, I was offered so many women. I was a woman's writer at that point, weirdly. Um, but I had enough other stuff. And I just, um, uh, Armageddon, I'd written some, I'd written, I'd written a bunch of other uh, aggressive scripts before that so um 
I, man, I just always wanted to mix it up. I didn't want to be pigeonholed. Um, I didn't want to take a gig that was like the one before. And I was willing to risk confusing people and taking sometimes less of a paycheck to change channels. Very conscious decision. You, at that point, I don't know if it's as strict now as it was then, or maybe it's worse. At that point, it was everybody was trying to figure out exactly who you are and keep you there. So it really was a concerted, you know, effort on your part. Yeah, um, that's interesting. And like looking at your, you know, the credits we see, and and I'm sure the ones we don't like, the the variation is so impressive. You know, because they're also good movies. Um, we'll we'll start to wrap up. Um, I, I want to just ask one more Andor thing, and that is about the relationship with Lucasfilm and, um, you know, people love this show, and rightfully so. Uh, and, and in many ways, it's because it doesn't feel like other Star Wars things. And in many ways, it's because it feels like Star Wars still. So I want to talk about that balance and, you know, writing a Star Wars show without lightsabers and <laughs> Wookiees. Uh, was that a conversation you had to have with Lucasfilm? Oh yeah, that's in that original material. I mean, that's really like, that's in the original conversations. No, let's do a show that just is about everybody else. It's, you know, and, they, and the, the hook was, you know, um, you've been in the restaurant for 40 years, let's go in the kitchen, you know, let's just really go in the back of the house. You know, the Michael Clayton, the Michael Clayton, mandate let's go to the back let's do a law firm where you never go to court let's go in the back of the house let's see what that's like um or um even born really was born was really like you know because it was in the it was in the midst of all those huge orchestral action pictures and it was like man can't we just take it down and do something acoustic you know i ran around so it's it's that kind of uh difference but no it was a conscious uh a conscious lane change um i'm not sure I'm not sure they were aware of what it would actually be or that we were aware of what it would actually be or the audience or that anybody was aware of how the audience would perceive what it would be. It was a, it was a pretty grand experiment, a pretty expensive experiment. Uh, and successful. Um, so congrats on the show. We're excited for more of it, excited for whatever comes next. Um, Tony, what are you watching these days? Oh, God, uh, dude. Uh, I, have you seen I've been dreading this since you said this before. I'm terrible at this. <laughs> All right. I'm going to ask you something else then. Okay. I, I'm going to ask you a different question. Uh, we're going to wrap up in a different way today. I'm going to ask you, what were the formative entertainments for you? What were the like movies, TV, books, plays that you saw that you feel like helped establish for you what a story can be and the kinds of stories you wanted to write? The writers that the writer, the, the, I'll try to, I'll make the, I'll make the weirdest pentagram of sources here. Uh, I was on the other night and my, and uh, it was on the other night on TCM. And I talked to my brother the next day. We remember the day we saw it and we remember how much it meant to us. I've tried to show it to my kids. They don't really get it. I mean, is there a better movie than it's a mad, 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 mad world? I mean, that movie for me, when I'm like, I don't know how old I was when I saw it. It's just like, and every time I watch it comes on, there's so much in there that has to do with Andor, um, if you think about it, really. And, okay, so that's one thing. And then, um, you know, for the writers, it was the dialogue writers, man. It was James Farrell and, and, and David Mamet and George Higgins, my God, George Higgins. And then the culmination, really, for me, of ultimate 
like the ultimate storytelling grander. Robert Stone for me is just like everything, you know? I mean, I really became a cult about Robert Stone. Those books to me are just everything. So that, um, and then beyond any, <laughs> beyond anything else, the Beatles. I mean, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking about the Beatles lately. A friend of mine's involved in the Beatle project. And, and I, and I just been obsessed my whole life. And like I said to the other day, I go, every single thing I know about how to do my job comes from, from that, from, from that appreciation, you know, of, you know, the simple shit of be, you got to be a great bar band before you can do anything else, you know, which is, you know, the idea that you should always, you know, look around the corner and turn up all the knobs and chase it. The idea that you should be so creatively ambitious that you don't ever want to do the thing that you did before. And you're always reaching and you don't have to get old and your imagination doesn't have to get stale. And that adding something trippy and in, in things is always a good spice. Um, you know, I mean, uh, what a weird try. Yeah, it's a mad, 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 mad world. And and Robert Stone and the Beatles. There you go. I'm I'm floating around there. Boy, that's a weird that's a weird answer. That's, that seems about right. That was a very weird answer, man. All right. <laughs> I love it. We're we're giving we're giving a lot of young writers some good homework. Man, if nothing else, I mean, I don't know, you know, Robert Stone, I don't know what his reputation is at the moment, but boy, oh boy. Go read Flag for Sunrise or go read Out of Bridge Reach or go read Dog Soldiers. You want to learn how to write. Thank you so much. Uh, I hope to chat again soon. Good luck with the with the show. All right. Yeah, we'll see you next time around. All right, man. Good luck.